Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Sarah Prime, I am so excited to have you on She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Oh, it's my great pleasure, Jules. I'm really excited about catching up today. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I can't wait for everyone to hear all about you. So I'm going to go straight in and say, why don't you tell everybody what it is that you're doing these days? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I was just I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. It's one of the hardest questions to answer. I guess in a it nutshell, when you're an I'm a person. <laughs> yeah, I'm a person who is on a mission to empower people in rural communities to recognise their capacity to affect positive change, um, so that no rural community reaches a tipping point of no return. That happens to be a skill that translates to non-rural communities, to corporations, to schools, to sporting clubs, to all sorts of places. But fundamentally, I'm a person who works in the area of rural contraction, decline and exodus and a champion of change for revitalising those communities. So anything that it takes to make that happen, that's what I do. That is a mouthful. But what is the name of your actual business? Because it's got to name your campaign, hasn't it? It does. So the social enterprise that I deliver these programs and events through is called Champions Academy. We have, have schools, sporting clubs, we have community <laughs> programs, um, next gen programs and events as well. And I also yeah. have a project called the, um, the Global Rural Community Project, which is um, a separate entity to the Champions Academy, which is all about creating an open source market for solutions to common rural problems so that we can get as many communities as possible turning a corner and never reaching that tipping point of no return, um, trying to help them to, uh, to move towards, um, uh, I guess, an era of prosperity again. You are amazing. I just have to say I love what you're doing and I love that you're making that change and and I'm sure any of my rural listeners are going to love it as well. So talk to me about why you set it up. Yeah, well, I guess there's a long version of the story and a short one. The short one goes that I was raised in a rural area, grew up on a family farm and um, we had to leave when I was quite young and move into town because of, you know, economic conditions at the time. It just wasn't viable to farm anymore. But despite all of the hardship, I remember that being one of the most incredibly vibrant and happy times in my family's life. Um, fast forward, you know, 20 or 30 years, I've had a corporate career. I've lived up in the Kimberleys. I've gone away and studied behavioural science at uni and done lots of different things. Oh, wow. yeah, you're gonna, um, I'm going to make you tell us all of those in a minute, but, do, but keep going because yeah. I love this. Well, I got to a point in my corporate career where it just, it, it was really grinding it out, you know, and I was putting my body um, through a lot just to be able to turn up, front up to work every day and do the job. And eventually um, I decided that that life was actually harming me and not um, one that was helping me to fulfil my passion. I was simply doing things because I was good at them or because people presented me with an opportunity. And I thought, you know, who am I without this job title or without this 13-year relationship that I was in? Who even is Sarah? Who even is she? What does she care about? And I made the choice to walk away from my material gain and wealth and title and whatever else I had accumulated and worked so hard for and to go back to that place where I felt a sense of attachment, a sense of belonging, a sense of community back down in Peninsula in South Australia. So were you, do you think you were burnt out from the corporate, from the corporate life that you'd been sort of, you know, pushing yourself and pushing yourself through? And, and so Yeah, and I'm pretty sure. No, no, go on. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it's certainly not a situation that's unique to me. Many of your listeners might have been through the same, but when you you rise up the corporate ladder reasonably quickly and you make a position of, you know, CEO or something equivalent quite young, you have this eternal 
imposter syndrome, which just just drives you to these extraordinary lengths. And I'm often um, heard to describe the moment as, you know, fearing that the world might stop turning if you dare to sleep. You know, yeah, someone right. might discover if you that dare you don't to have sleep. all of the answers. Oh, yeah. My oh gosh, I'd work until two in the morning. Just that was when I was productive. That's when it was quiet. The phones weren't ringing. And I would forget to eat for days at a time just because it was such an inconvenience to have to stop what I was doing. And so you would pick at things when you were at, you know, business events and, and whatnot, but basically just live on coffee or packets oh of chips. Oh, my goodness. Right. So, so <laughs> you sort of little wonder that I got sick, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you yeah. hit this wall and you thought, I have to go, get away. And where do I think I of did. I'm going to – I remember this beautiful place that I used to go to as a child. So you headed back down – for what was it just going mm. to be for, were you taking a month off? I mean, had you, what was the I plan? Was. I was, I had this marvellous plan in my mind, very Thelma and Louise. I bought myself a, <laughs> one of those big old Land Rover Defenders because it was what we had when we were growing up and it was going to be my adventure car. I was going to make yep. a beeline down the centre of Australia. I was going to go back to Air Peninsula, have a month's R&R, long walks on the beach, you know, write in my journal, rediscover Sarah. Remember what it felt oh, like it to sounds be fabulous and healthy and completely at peace. So Port Neal in Air Peninsula, that was where it was at. And I did, I rediscovered that feeling of home. But what also happened at that time was I had a terrible car accident and was stranded there. I mean, worst places in the world to be stranded. But, you know, I'd just begun this new fork in the road adventure and all of a sudden here I was in Port Neal without any wheels without any family or close friends around me and were you were you injured in the car everything I was going to say were you injured in the car accident no. or it was it was just that your car was written off in which case it sounds like the universe well, was trying to make you uh, learn something it was like a, <laughs> it was it was like fate just sort of gave me a big slap in the face and went this way stupid you know I've been trying to tell you I've been trying to give you all these signs but this is where you belong but no it was right. quite it was quite interesting because as you alluded to, I, I did completely burn out. You know, some might say it was a nervous breakdown. Some might say it was burnout. Some might say that I was, you know, I was completely incapacitated in terms of workflow and um, thought processes and everything else. So when I was having that, you know, crystallizing moment where you're having the accident and everything slows down and your life flashes before your eyes, I have this vivid memory of my all that I had left with that was in my you know, my worldly belongings in my car flying past my head and hitting the windscreen in front of me, not knowing which way it was up and which way it was down. And I remember thinking to myself, if this is my end, I'm at peace with that. And right. I just gripped onto the steering wheel with my hands and, yeah, I took my feet off the pedals and just let things take their course because, I mean, you can't break in the middle of an accident and expect it to do anything anyway. So I just sort of yeah. gripped on. And when I opened my eyes and my vehicle was sitting upright but in trees and I didn't oh have my whiplash, gosh. I didn't have a scratch on me, not a bruise, I just sort of thought, oh, well, that turned out okay, you know. And luckily um, I had been following a friend on this dirt road and so I just rang them. I said, I think I've just rolled my car. Can you come back and help me? Yeah. And so they came back and towed me out and, um, yeah, and it was just a matter of time getting the vehicle fixed. And, of course, having been through what I had just gone through in Cairns, um, while I was in Port Neal, I wasn't looking to start anything new. I was looking to just, you know, focus on my health Chill and out. happiness. Yeah. Exactly. But, of course, what happened was I met and fell in love with a local farmer and never left. And now we're married with two kids living in this <laughs> tiny little rural community called Warminder. And ah. rural communities rock. So yeah, they do. They that's do. What I'm I all think about. any of us city folks, when we go out to rural areas, think about that. But was there a light bulb moment? Was there something that actually happened during the course of all of this and before you settled down that made you just mm -hmm. go, I'm not going to go back to work, actually. I'm going to do something different. How did that all pan out? Well, it's quite funny, actually, because when I met my now husband, I had this grand vision that I was going to continue on my merry journey around the Great Ocean Coast and uh, Ocean Road and up the East Coast to Yamba in New South Wales. Right. Um, and that was where I was going to base myself until I figured out what I was going to do next. And he had already a, a trip with his guy mates from uni or whatever 
planned to go to Central America for ages. And so it was never supposed to, you know, work out on paper. Right. But, um, yeah, but what did happen was, you know, fate took its course and I never left. And when he came back, he said, thank God you never left. I've not done anything except think about you the whole time I went. And I, I oh, wish that I hadn't I get gone. Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so that was, that was the moment when we decided, <laughs> you know, that we were going to settle down here. But what's really interesting is I decided to go back to where I'd grown up. I had right. this nostalgic picture in my mind that, you know, I knew things had changed. I knew there'd been a recession. I knew that, you know, with all of the developments in agriculture and technology, farms had gotten bigger but less reliant on human labour and that people had left town because, you know, there were no job opportunities in those industries for those people. And as they left, you know, they took their families with them and schools just got smaller until they closed and, you know, there was no longer hospitals or doctors in those towns. Eventually general stores closed, all that sort of thing. So I knew those things had happened. But when I drove back there on that particular day with a different lens on, a lens that said, Sarah, you're now living back in Eyre Peninsula. You're not just visiting. You're not just passing through town. And I drove past that general store that had the smashed window that was gaffer taped up and the facade of the building cracked and peeling. And I drove past the empty homes that just had weeds as high as me in the front yard. And, you know, the house that I'd grown up in just looked completely deserted. I drove to where I'd done my primary schooling and the buildings were literally gone. And then I drove out to where the sporting community was, which was, you know, a place where kids just don't turn up to play sport and families don't just go to socialise. It's the place where you learn how to be an active contributor to your community. It's a, a value system of volunteerism that grows yeah. from this this common ground of sport. And there's this really strong sense of of mateship. It's like the beating pulse of a community. Yeah, I was going to say it's a bit like the heart, isn't it? It really is. It really is. And when I got out there and I saw that, um, you know, this place that that had these vibrant sporting teams no longer had footy and netball teams to represent it anymore and I was standing there next to where the torn astroturf on the netball court was just flapping in the wind. I felt like it had been, you know, I was just massive gut punch, you know. It took the wind yeah. out of me and I just remember thinking to myself, you know, what what legacy can be passed on from here because anyone who's born in the current era will never know how amazing the community what it was, like, was. Yeah. and who's going to teach them if there's no one here anymore. And as I drove back to the farm that day where we live now, I went through the, the communities of Kyopa and Rudow, then Verin and then Warminda, and I saw the exact same pattern. I saw these crumbling, peeling grain silos. I saw derelict so, town halls and bare patches so, of ground where schools were. Were people living there still? I mean, were there a few houses that were um, still with people living in them? And if so, what do those people do? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of these communities um, still have people living in them and certainly there are farming districts with families around them. And um, it's just that the local commerce and trade doesn't exist anymore. You know, there might be a couple of small businesses that people run. They might be earth moving or something like that where they need that kind of space to be able to park up all their machinery. But, you know, you just don't have the local general store and the post office and the school. So where do you go? If if you haven't got that, do you you have have to just travel for miles? You do. So it's absolutely nothing for a family to have to travel a minimum of two-hour turnaround to go and play a game of footy now or to go and see a doctor or to go and do their grocery shopping. Um, And they don't think anything of it because that's just what they have to do. They don't have another option. So um, it really is something that I saw through a new lens and I thought, well, if I'm going to base myself here and I'm going to raise my children with the same upbringing that I had, what future am I giving them? And it was at that moment that I really felt that sense of urgency to do something about it and to use the skills that I had acquired in my corporate career, which might not have felt adequate at the time, but I realised were transferable. If I could empower other people with what I'd learned on my journey, I might just be able to help them to do something to turn their community around or prevent it from reaching that tipping point of no return. Amazing. And Champions Academy was born. Amazing. So tell me um, exactly what what champions 
Academy does to actually bring bring life back to these towns. And then I'm going to wind you right the way back to when you were a little girl and find out how in heaven's name you got here. But first, <laughs> just tell me what exactly Champions um, Academy does to help these people. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it's you think of it like a mentoring framework where you connect um, people with a mentor that assists them through a learning process and really it's it's more a personal development and, and mission of self-discovery. But you're teaching them the importance of acquiring, gener- uh, acquiring information from the generation that went before them, before the need for that information is vital, before we're relying on it. You know, we want right. to make sure that the legacy that that person understands of this town is passed on. But when we learn it, it's our responsi- responsibility to then turn around and teach it to someone else. So Champions Academy gets together a group of individuals. It teaches them about the importance of seeking out role models, of behaving like role models, teaches them how to reinvest in the value system of volunteerism. So say, for example, in a Champions Academy sporting club program, we would do that by um, bringing in the people that currently run the club. How does the treasurer do their job? How does the catering convener do their job? What does it take to be a coach or an umpire or a um, you know, grounds person, get to know these people and the hours that they put in. Because if they didn't turn up and do their job, the doors to this club wouldn't open on a weekend. Yeah. And it takes a lot more than kicking around a pigskin for a club to run. It's not just about playing the game. It's more than a game. So you, you're basically kind of teaching them how to rejuvenate their club or even start a club. Right. Yeah. Love well, it. we used clubs as an example, as an inroad, yeah. because it is actually one of the last remaining incubators of leadership that everyday people have access to. But interestingly, it's also yeah. um, one of the only reliable lead indicators of community health and well-being. Because um, I think there's a great quote um, from the conversation. A man named Jonathan West wrote an article about it um, a few years back, talking about the connection of club and community. Um, And there was a lot of research done, particularly in Victoria, I believe, about how a club's performance pretty much determined or was a a lead indicator of what the town's performance was. Because when a club could no longer field and finance a team, that community was already on the slippery slope to extinction. On its knees, yeah, right. Yep, that is absolutely crippling, you know. And so when a club closes its doors, it's like a domino effect. Yeah. So, so talk to me though about money. I mean, how do they, so if, even if you're running as a volunteer, you still need uniforms, you still need the balls, you still need to pay the electricity bill for the lights to be on at night, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've got a really small town that's kind of dying, and certainly I did a drive mm. from Melbourne to Noosa and back <laughs> last year, and I'm telling you, there were loads of ver- of rural communities that were, you know, Mm. Whole town, shopping strips with there maybe only two shops open and, you know, the pub only opens at night on Fridays and Saturdays, that kind of thing. How do you then bring everyone back? How do you, how do you start to build that community and, and make it a place that other people want to live without money? Exactly. Exactly. That is the question that they're asking. Um, and, you know, you mentioned about money. Well, the small businesses that are there, if you think about um, what you understand the concept of sponsorship to be, yes, local businesses in small country towns don't sponsor clubs because they expect something out of them. It's not because they're going to get right. amazing exposure and be seen as these altruistic um, companies. They do it out of a sense of duty because they know yeah, right. that that club cannot buy Guernseys if they don't have you know, the okay. $500 sponsorship or, um, you know, the the budget so, isn't photocopied so does part by, of the you know, champions, the local insurance company. So does part of the Champions Academy teach those people how to go and find a sponsor and, and also presumably as you've got people in there who may own businesses in town, also tell them, you know, the importance and the value of having of being a sponsor? Yeah, well, that's one of the things that we do. We, we make sure that they understand the value of the sponsors, what they're giving up and the need to return value to them. It's not just a given. You shouldn't be expecting yeah, that right. this is an obligation from them to you. You need to create value back to them however you can do that and it might not it might not be in the conventional sense. Um, but what we also do, and this is the same across all of our Champions Academy programs regardless of who they're delivered um, through, yeah. we teach people how to go problem hunting. 
And by that, I mean, if you can think and behave like a problem hunter, you get at the front of a trend before it happens. You can find a solution for something that you can then innovate and entrepreneurialize. And all of a sudden you have a new revenue stream. So in the sense of sporting clubs, we might teach people that there are ways that you can enterprise your ideas. They might all be small ideas, but they can create different revenue streams that aren't just members income, uh, sorry, membership and subs that aren't just sponsorship. You know, you might find that there are different ways to do things because let's face it, the way we're doing things at the moment, well, it ain't working that well for us. It ain't working. Exactly. We do need to adapt and change. Yeah. Cool. So we just teach right. people how to notice the changing conditions around them and to do something with that. That is amazing. How many people or how many, I don't know, whether you, uh, how how big is it? <laughs> I was going to go how many people, how many towns, <laughs> but you tell me, how big is it? Well, how, how long have you been doing it for as well? Yeah, I launched the idea in 2015 through Ports Football and Netball Club down here in Air Peninsula. And right. that initial program the sporting club program has now had about 63 graduates through it. So these are people who have done two years wow. worth of personal development and come out the other side. There've been literally thousands of people um, at our events, at our It's More Than a Game events and um, super clinics. There have been um, two years worth of school programs now and we've had um, dozens of classes through those from year three, four, five, seven, nine and ten. We've run next-gen events um, with 18 schools Well, they are next-gen events, aren't they? 10 you, different can, LGAs, yeah. If you can get into exactly. the schools, you know, you're getting the children That's to be it. thinking about that moving forward. Oh, I just love the way your brain thinks. So now let me ask you the big question, which is sure. tell me how this all happened. Can you take me through your career today till today so because I'm guessing that when you were <laughs> a little on girl on the what one do to end up here <laughs> <laughs> exactly because I always feel that well, for the women listening that they it's all well and good to say this is what I'm doing and I'm achieving but they want to know how it happened and and how you've yeah. ended up you know with the skills to know what to do so go on take me right the way back to leaving the, or, or the air peninsula and on from there yeah well Leaving Air Peninsula and leaving high school, um, we were living in a town called Kimber by this point, and right. my only desire was to leave. I'd been plotting <laughs> my exit because if I couldn't live in Dart Peak or on the farm, I didn't want to be anywhere. And I so think that's very I common was, for a lot of young women, isn't it, that they want to leave the city and then when is. you get older you go, I want my children to have what I had. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah. But I, um, I went away to, to Flinders Uni in Adelaide thinking, and this is before it was TV shows and things like that, I was going to study criminals. I wanted to right. learn how to um, identify in people what makes a switch flick in their head. What makes oh, them interesting. apparently normal and then all of a sudden have this complete change in demeanour and behaviour in thought processes? Or were they always like it? And if so, why? And so I went and I studied mm-hmm. behavioural science. But what I discovered was that I was pretty crap at uni. Right. I um, I wasn't failing, but I just wasn't academic. And although so I did, did you make okay lots of great school, friends <laughs> and have not a great really, experience? No. Oh, no. that's a pity. That's I a pity. I was a I was always out watching bands play, and I was that person who was. Um, yeah, getting around the live music scene and going to 50 Cent Beer Nights and all those sorts of things. I yeah. was probably pretty That's what undesirable. Is about for me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I realised after two years, look, Sarah, if you're ever going to make a career of this dream that you have, because there was no degree for it at that time, there was no such thing as criminology degree, um, I realised that if I was going to forge a career here, I would need to join the police force and then somehow join the federal police. And I had no intention or desire where that was concerned. That. And so I did what you would naturally do in that situation. I quit uni and I became a bartender. And so I worked at a little local pub on West Terrace in Adelaide for about two and a half years. I did a, uh, I went to a grooming department school with Tanya Powell Modelling Agency and I learned a few really valuable life skills there. One of them was how not to become a model. <laughs> so I'm a failed model as well. I can only tell you that my mother had the same idea and sent me to some finishing school in Melbourne. And all I remember is being taught how to get out of a sports car, a low sports car in a short skirt. 
and the art of conversation, which I have never ever had any problem with. So I, I, I hear well, you. See, I'm the opposite. So, <laughs> well, I, you're doing very well then. I learned. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I learned how to take better care of myself, you could say. I learned how to present myself well and to do things with a bit more dignity. Thank God someone taught me. Um, and my parents, you know, looking back, had been trying to teach me that already. It's just when you hear it from someone else, you know. Oh, I know. Oh, it's a light bulb moment. We now. don't listen to our parents and so I, because we know better <laughs> when exactly, you're that age. Exactly, Yes, and I'm sure that karma is just going to, you know, Really uh, bite you on the, the ass. On I reckon one. it will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what did I do next? Oh, that's right. I I worked for ANZ for a while, and then I oh. um I met and fell in love with a ringer from the top end, and I went and lived up in Kununurra for a couple of years, and we wow. worked in his dad's company. Now he was a he. They used to own a sta- uh, cattle station up there, but it was resumed under the the Keep River um, National Park in the Ord River Valley. Um, scheme and so um when we went up there it wasn't to live on the cattle station but he had his dad had this um job network contract for um, matching people to jobs in the long term unemployed and so I went from being the the company bookkeeper to um running the employee leasing you know backpackers who would go and work out in the fruit farms to eventually managing the company by the end of the second year wow and I thought to myself well if I'm gonna you know do this I should probably get the piece of paper to say that I'm capable of doing it because we decided we were going to head over east to Cairns by this point make a beeline across the top end and um, so I registered for a a degree in accounting online and I went and knocked on the biggest doors in town until I got a job and I started as an auditor corporate governance auditor at an accounting firm wow I did that for about yeah for about three years and then I um yeah it, it was incredible learning ground. I will always was it? Be Tell me a little bit that. about it. Why, why was it so good? And did you have good bosses? Because often that makes a big difference too. Yeah, it does. But I think it was more the lifestyle of an auditor. It's very um, different to what you might think because it, corporate governance order is not like tax auditing. Um, yes, it's the tick and flick and, you know, substantiating what's in a balance sheet and, and um, P&L, but... My job involved um, travelling around to all different, um, you know, island councils and um, all up around the Cape to different um, um, non-profits and things like that and NGOs doing internal controls, audits, looking at systems that were in place and um, helping people to reduce inherent risk of, you know, things happening with public money that shouldn't happen with public money. yeah. And so, you know, picture little two-seater planes and we're being flown out to these little island communities like Bamaga or up the Cape to places like, uh, sorry, out to Bamaga and Sasha on the Cape and all of these other places in the islands, Boigo Island and Mobiag and all these amazing tiny little places and these tiny little planes. And auditing teams were a lot of fun. They're usually young people. Um and my manager was quite young. He was, oh, I don't even know if he was 30 yet at the time. And so, yeah, we, we had a fantastic time. It was yeah, basically right. a little, little bit like boarding, yeah. It's, well, it sounds um, wonderful actually, <laughs> especially the fact that yeah. maybe it's just because I'm in freezing cold Melbourne, the thought of being up in Cairns and flying around <laughs> to islands sounds pretty bloody fabulous. <laughs> well, it was and I loved it. I got to see a lot of the country and to experience a lot of different communities and what was particularly valuable about that time was seeing how different businesses did different things, seeing what worked and what didn't, seeing what had big gaping holes in it and what was really well run, seeing what was financially um, working and what was a complete disaster. And all of these things, if you're smart, you can learn and apply to your own life experience. At the time, I don't think I was smart. At the time, I just thought, oh, I'm really good at this system stuff. I like this. Um, and I was seconded by the business advisory team after a while. I did did do a year of tax at that firm as well, but I really loved the special projects business advisory team. Okay. And I became a specialist in systems and operations for them, you know, helping right. people to set up internal controls and software platforms and all that kind of caper. Sounds disgusting, um, if I might say. But anyway, it, I'm yeah, glad that I you loved it. I see everyone's shutters come down when I talk I about know, that. I know, I'm just like, Ugh. But anyway, I also know that we need people like you as well in order for the world to go around. So what was the next step they, after they that? What, and what happened with, so, the, with that job? 
Well, you know how things happen in seven-year cycles? You sort of get a bit restless. I got to that mm-hmm. point where I went, well, I've been with this firm for seven years now. I'm 28 years old or I might have been 27. I'm young enough that I can start an entirely new career. I'm not afraid of not climbing this corporate ladder because I don't think I want to become a partner of an accounting and business services firm. Okay. So that weekend I was just flipping through the paper and there was a job as an economic development officer with the Peak Economic Development Agency up in Cairns. And I thought, well, those skills are probably quite transferable because it's the same as doing what I was doing in business consulting, but the business is the region. And so I went across there and I did that. And um, lo and behold, my boss got cancer and had to go away for cancer treatment. And after a short time of working there, I found myself in this acting CEO role that I didn't feel ready for at all. Right. I felt like um, hence your you comment know, earlier about yep. Okay. Yeah. People would discover I was a complete fraud, and who was she anyway? And what makes her think she can do this job? And you're turning up to your board's meetings, it's and so you're trying weird. to you tell should... them what's going on. There are just you know, I, it's not just that role. I, I don't think. I think there's a lot of women particularly if you are pushed up the ladder because people see leadership skills in you or whatever, that you get Mm. there and you just feel like you haven't earned it in some weird way or that someone's going to catch you out somehow and know that you're not real. When actually, I mean, now that I'm older and you're older, you look at it and think if you did see someone really young who who really had potential, you would want to lift them up. But it's so funny, isn't it, that you – it, it can really affect you. I mean, I got I got headhunted by the Herald Sun when I was about 19. Same thing. And they pushed me through to management. And I remember thinking, I don't think I'm ready for this. <laughs> you know, you just kind of all feel so much. So it? it is. So how did you cope? And how long did you do that role for as CEO? Um, oh, I couldn't tell you exactly. My boss did come back. He, he's okay, still good. alive and well to this day. Great. Um, but I think I stayed in that role with that um, organisation for about three years and okay. then I received a well call done. one day. Well done, it out. Yeah, yep. thank you. <laughs> um, I received a call one day saying that um, there was this new thing happening. There were going to be these 52 offices of Regional Development Australia established around the country and it was going to be this joint initiative of state and federal government to set the strategic priorities from the region and they needed people to work out what the priorities needed to be. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, so we think you should apply for the CEO role. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And they said, no, we've got this ministerially appointed board and we'd like you to apply for the role. Um, it's not a given. You're not getting it. You've got to win the role. But I thought, well, look, what have I got to lose? I'll throw my hat in the ring, not expecting anything of it. I think 24 or something people from around the country applied for the same role that I had thrown my hat in the ring for. But I got it much to my wow. complete shock and amazement. And um, it was around this time that the real sickness manifested, I think. I remember right. I would wake up at night feeling like I was being strangled, you know, clearly having a panic oh, attack. I felt Sarah. like someone had their knees on my chest and their arms around my throat. Because it's, I... it's two different things wanting a job to see whether you can get it just because, you know, why mm-hmm. not? Like, I mean, you know, it sounds amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing if I get it? And then getting it and going, oh, my God, what have I done? And did you get that yeah. feeling very early on? I did because I remember people um, speaking to me. You know, if I got up at a Chamber of Commerce event or something like that and gave a speech, I remember someone pulling me aside afterwards and saying, um, oh, my boss thinks you're going to be the next Anna Bly. And I thought, God, that I, I don't need that kind of pressure. I've already right. put enough on myself. You know, they, you know, having people ask you if you had politi- political aspirations and if you could see yourself perhaps running for mayor or something like that, and you just think, what have I done? I don't want this. This isn't this isn't <laughs> right. me. Yeah. And then the other half of you goes, but they think that you can do it. You know, you probably it's can if you give it, it a is. crack. Yeah. And then you start finding out when you wake up in the morning fully clothed, that something has happened while you've been asleep, you know, and you, you're you a bit confused when that happens. I remember I used to go to bed completely naked and I would wake up in the morning completely clothed. I thought that can't be, you know. No, that's that, very weird. Surely I'm not being abducted by aliens or whatever. And it kept happening until one night I woke up and I was sleepwalking and I remember the dream that I was having. I thought that someone was knocking at the front door 
and that I would let them down if I didn't go and answer the door. So I'd better get dressed. No matter how tired you are, Sarah, you've got to go and get dressed and open that door. What if they really need you? So it really was a bit of a metaphor for allowing other people's or my fear of letting other people down drive me. So it went from being about not being discovered as an imposter to I can't let these people down. They've put their faith in me. And um, it took for, um, oh, look, I had a friend pull me aside and say, Sarah, your clothes are falling off of you. What's going on? You've lost all this weight. You you know, I didn't dare tell them my hair had started falling out in chunks and that I had to hold my hands so that they wouldn't shake. Quite often felt like I was going to stumble when I was walking. Whoa, so you just... sound like you were teetering on the edge of something massive. I'm yeah. so glad that, that somebody started pointing this out to you. Yeah, they did. And so I I took myself off to the GP and I said, look, it's probably nothing. It's probably just stress related, but I thought I should, you know, get a health check and just make sure it's nothing more sinister. And um, my doctor, who's just this wonderful, wonderful lady, um, said to me, look, I'll do broad spectrum testing on you, but I suspect we're not going to find anything evil. I suspect your body is giving you some very serious signs to say, I'm going to start shutting down if you don't start taking care of yourself. She said, so I'm going to take some bloods. We're going to do that. Um, And we're going to do this other test, this K10 test, which is a mental wellbeing test, a, a, um, a scale of depression and anxiety. And when she did it, and it's looking only at what your results are of the last week, just to give you a baseline, and she said, um, you're actually in the top 2% for suicide risk. Oh, my God. And that was a bit of, yeah, that was a bit of an yeah. interesting find. I did not expect that. I was just so completely numb and so completely detached from everything that I almost didn't care what happened to me anymore. And so I was put on suicide watch and um, I I had to see a counsellor every second day for a while and then every second week and then, you know, spanned out. But what she said to me on that day when she did that test was, I need you to go home and shut your laptop and switch your phone off and spend the week just resting. Just put your feet up and at the end of the week you can come in and we'll talk through your test results, whatever they are, we'll work it out. And when you come back at the end of the week and we have this meeting, I'm going to give you a letter of leave of absence from your work because I think you need to let your board know that you need some time to heal. And she said, and when you have that leave of absence, we're going to have another meeting at the end of that month and I'm going to do the same thing. And she said, I'm going to keep this process going every month until you realise that what you are doing is harmful to yourself and that you realise what you need to do to be well. And I think it's time you started questioning whether or not you are leading a life that is being fair to yourself and if this is what you really want because I can see that you are going to be your own worst enemy in a way that maybe isn't reversible. What an amazing doctor. I love her. I mm, love her that she recognised it and that she can't stop you. Stop, slow down. Yeah, I do too. So how did you feel though through all of that? Well, I think by the time um, the mask had come off then, once she had the evidence in front of her that I was forced to look at, I was that uh, far gone that I didn't have tears, I didn't have anything, I just didn't care. I was in a state where I would just sit idly and just stare and not know how long I'd been staring for. It could be minutes or hours. I would just lie and stare, you know, pulled up under the quilt or whatever. And um, I remember my mum coming to my house and just bundling me up and putting me in the car and taking me away to, to her place 15 minutes away, her and dad. And I just crawled into the bed there and I slept for about three days, I reckon. But wow. you know, I've never had I've never let other people help me before. And for her, that was the mm. first moment where she just said I said, Bullshit, Sarah, I'm taking charge. I don't care if you don't want to be wrapped in cotton wool. And she just bundled me up like a child. And um yeah. And that was when the the healing process. She must have been terrified. Your parents must began. have been so scared. Well, Mum in particular was because she had been trying to make me change for the last two years. She had told me at least two years before, Sarah, I'm afraid that something serious is going to happen. And I just, oh, Mum, stop it. Stop worrying. I'm fine. You know, this is part of the job, you know. And I just kept brushing her off. I used to, I literally said to her once, stop mothering me, would you? And (laughs) as a mum now, I realised that would have been like a knife in her heart. Sorry, Mum. I love you. (laughs) 
<laughs> so so um so what what came so then was that when you decided to go down to the air peninsula and and all of this was born well no um when it got to that stage and i rang my partner at the time and i said look i'm not doing so well um because he was a driller and he was away working um he wasn't seeing these things happening he would come home from work and he would be doing his own recovery you know it's very hard on the body what he does and yeah. and so um, I don't think he ever realised and perhaps I didn't let him understand to the full extent what I was going through, but we were probably right. both on different journeys. Um, and this is a person I still hold in very high regard, understand. Um, I I ended up making the decision that I needed to leave for self-preservation. I had to walk away from people that I cared about and, like I said, things that I had worked hard for and for the first time put myself first and that nearly killed me. I'll be honest, that seeing other people hurt because of the choice that I had made, the selfish choice that I had made, um, oh, Sarah, it, it was soul-destroying. Sarah, after all the things that you have done for other people disregarding yourself, it's amazing that well, you felt that foolish. way. Because they, you, yeah, but I guess, you know, when your brain is clouded and you don't know what's going on, it's clouded, you know, mm. like, but, but really that, to yeah. think that you were letting people down when actually – you were just trying to yeah, survive. It's amazing to me. Yeah, but anyway. I hadn't grown up yet. I didn't realise that you can't be there for anyone else if you can't look after yourself. If you don't know how to yeah, look right. after yourself, what good are you to anyone else? And so that would be something I would say to anyone who's listening right now. Gosh, take care of yourself. Look out for yourself before you worry about anything else because, yeah. you know, you might not cease, to, you know, you might cease to exist if you don't and then how can you help anyone? That's very, very true. God, and to be, to be, to have have somebody assess you and go, you're in the top two percent for suicide would be so confronting because you'd be thinking, I'm not thinking that at all, but you know, you were obviously no, so close to it, so close. Do you to know it. what my ears so, probably um, heard at the time? Oh, top two percent. I'm an overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I laugh, but I want to cry as well. So, talk to me yeah. about um, setting up the Champions Academy. Were there some pivotal moments during that where something went wrong or something didn't turn out the way you thought it would and you, and you ended up moving direction or learning something from it that you'd be up for sharing? Oh, for sure. I am an open book when it comes to um, lessons learned from um, mistakes made and uh, lessons learned from challenges faced. Um, when I first pitched the concept, picture a football club AGM with um, mostly farmers in the room from the age of, say, 21 to 71. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably about 30-odd people. And I, when they said, is there any other business, I put my hand up and I said, look, I've written this value proposition for a mentoring framework that I'd like to put to the club. <coughs> um, it's about empowering the next generation to stand up and recognise their capability to shape the future of their club and make it more sustainable. And um, I've given it to the club president to read in advance. Um, would you be interested in considering this proposal? And they looked at it and asked me a few questions, but they said, Sarah, we have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. But you know, you... as you said, uh, as you said, value proposition, blah blah blah. I thought you probably lost them on that. Just what the hell yeah. is that even? They were probably <laughs> thinking, "What's a netballer doing at the AGM?" That's well, yeah. There's that too, but and and then having the nerve to get up and tell us what we should be doing. <laughs> yeah, no, but they were very, very open and very um, warm people, and still are. But they said to me, Sarah, yeah. we've got no idea what you're talking about. But um, if you can. If you can find a way to finance it, we'll be your guinea pig. We trust you. You're one of Fantastic. us. We trust you. Amazing. And they never, ever, ever didn't back me in a decision that I made or in trying to grow or scale or in trying new things when things didn't work out. You know, I had complete transparency um, with the with the central management um, treasurer and president the entire time because they, are they knew part of the, why are they I was part trying of the to help. Sorry, are they part of the organisation now? Like do you have a team of people, of volunteers that are helping you do this? 
Well, no, yes and no. What I used to do was to bring in different people from different roles in the club all the time to teach us, um, to show us how they did their job at the club and to impart their lived experience um, with us as well. And so they've been um, mentors to the group. But in terms of the team that I work with, I actually now employ four graduates of the program and continue each year to grow by about another person per year. But I think oh, brilliant. what we've got on the books at the moment, we could probably double that team by this time next year. It's just so much um, demand for the work that we do and um, I just get inquiries all the time. It's really a matter of being able to finance it first, which any entrepreneur will tell you like where do you find the money to grow when you've got to bankroll it yourself sure the revenue comes yes, later we, but if you can't bankroll it what how do you even grow we could have a very long conversation about just that but have you found yourself a sponsor mm. yet have you got one now or is it just all the small businesses because you would think that there would be a large government organization or or a large corporate organization that would love mm. to be getting in at that grassroots level yeah, and if you're out there, give me a call. Yes, but, um, if anyone's <laughs> Little plug. Um, it, it really came down to what was then the Rural Industries Research and Development Corporation, which is now AgriFutures, the Rural Women's Awards. Um, right. I rang them up when I got a, um, a grant funding newsletter and I thought, well, you know, I had been banging my head against a brick wall and everyone was shutting me down and saying, oh, no, we don't. They thought it was a, a sporting club program to teach sports. And so they'd say, no, you need to ring, you know, Sport and Rec or we only fund Classic buildings. entrepreneur's story. You're trying to do something yep. that people can't even comprehend. Too conceptual. <laughs> yeah, too much yep. blue sky. And eventually when I got that news that I thought, oh, God, they support women. I'm a woman, surely I can have a crack at this. And so I did and I rang and I told them the story of why I was doing what I was doing and there was this long, awkward pause and I just thought, here it comes, here comes the, yeah, it's not really for us. But instead, this amazing woman on the other end of the phone said, you are exactly what we've been waiting for. Oh, right, I'm going to email you an application <laughs> right now. And by the way, it closes in half an hour. So quickly just put in whatever you can and send it through to me by 5 o'clock and um, we'll get you going through this process. Little did I know that was the Rural Women's Awards. It was not just a bursary to help women get programs off the ground. So right. a few months later I um, received the Rural Women's Award for South Australia and another six Amazing. months after that... I was named the Australian Rural Woman of the Year. I won the national award in front of a whole bunch of people at Parliament Incredible. House. Incredible. Seven months pregnant, waddling up on stage to get an award. So <laughs> well, you absolutely that was ten thousand dollars. <laughs> that was ten thousand dollars of state money and ten thousand dollars of federal money um, that I really used to bankroll the program. And once I'd done the pilot, I commercialised it, and it was um, a membership-based program. Yeah, great. But, uh, that's got its own lessons attached to it. It does. I'm just going through that myself with She's the Boss. So amazing. Now, we have got hardly any time left, so I'm going to jump a couple of other questions. But Go there's just the fun bits at the end I always love asking. So is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you'd be up for sharing with us? Well, there is. I <laughs> was once a singer in a rock band for a couple of years. <laughs> So there you Fantastic. Go. Hard rock, yeah. you know. I was all about baby animals, Joan Jett, bit of rock set in that era, you know, a bit of Janice oh, Joplin. I wonder if it'll come back. Or maybe you'll have children oh. who'll be in a band. Oh, they are they are already, you know, putting on their, their performances and I am rocking out with them. <laughs> oh, Massive fantastic. air guitars. We make we make mic stands out of cardboard tubes and we just like we put on Guns N' Roses film clips and we jam. <laughs> That's fantastic. I've got this vision of you in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere pumping out the music super loud. Oh, yeah. Okay, now the last Hairography. two questions. <laughs> Hairography. Um, the last two questions are super silly really because I love my phone. That's fine. Um, so I just ask about apps. 
Uh, are there a couple mm. of apps that you use? Do you use your phone for business? Are there a couple of apps that you'd like to recommend to yes. us? You can't do social media and banking because I'm going to take that as a given. No, ooh, I don't. I don't spend any time on social media if I can help it, um, other than oh, to, aren't you know, unusual. to connect with people. Oh, I find it really hard to to engage. I don't know why. Right. I, I think it's because I go into a scroll hole and I'm. I realise I'm not actually controlling what I'm doing. I'm just being. Right. But the right. apps on the phone. I, I actually use a, um, a phone and an iPad Pro because I've, I've just gotten it and um, I love it so much I want to have its babies. And my two favourite <laughs> apps at the moment are OneNote because yes. I can now handwrite all my notes on the iPad instead of carrying around seven different workbooks because I'm a real scribbler. Oh, is OneNote the thing where you can write with your handwriting and it'll turn it into text? Oh, you no. can use that um, mechanism with anything. You buy the pencil with the iPad. You can use that in heaps of apps. You can use it in Word, oh, whatever. Oh, I didn't know that. You name it. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So OneNote. OneNote's a good one. OneNote is my is my new notebook app, and the other one that I use constantly is Asana. I love to use Asana yeah. to work with, collaborate with, keep on track with projects because uh, my head is a little bit like a sieve, and I need that kind of organization that lives outside of me. I love it. Well, and what about fun? Do you play on your phone at all? Do you play Candy Crush or? Uh, no, no. If or... I if I have time for play, I probably pick up a book. Yeah, yeah. good girl. <laughs> That's a bad thing to do. And I scribble in that too. <laughs> with the lead pencil, taking notes and dog-eared pages uh, and. That's so funny. Sarah, it has just been such a delight interviewing you. Can you tell the listeners if they want to get hold of you, what's the best way? Yeah, reach out to me via my website, sarahprime.com. Um, I would love to hear from you. I've got a Facebook page where every Friday I share 20 seconds with Sarah, so feel free to have a laugh at my expense. I'm usually doing something completely stupid I've messed up during the week. Um, but, yeah, jump on the website and connect with me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, well, you are just such an inspiration and thank you for what you're doing for rural um, Australia because somebody needed to do it and it's wonderful that it's you and, I, uh, you know, I'd love to have a crystal ball for 10 years from now, but I think you'll do it. I Thanks think you'll do so it across much. the country. Oh, thank you so much, Jules. I really appreciate that. Hashtag rural communities rock. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Hashtag they do. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Jules. Have a great day. I hope you've enjoyed this She's the Boss chat episode. It was great to have you here. If you want to stay in touch, you might also like some of the other things that we've got going on with She's the Boss. Join us for our free Zoom lunches for female founders that we hold online. The best way to do any of these things really is go to she'stheboss.com.au and on there you can register for the lunches and I've also got links to the website. So either way, I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm really enjoying digging down and getting down to the nitty gritty with these women and I hope you'll join me for the next episode.